Michael McStye is one of those actors who has been in everything. Tall, with strong granite features, piercing eyes and a rich voice. He's done good service to plenty of TV favourites, from his first credit in 1960 on Dixon of Dot Green, to his latest over 50 years later in Coronation Street. Along the way, he's done The Avengers, The Lotus Eaters, Juliet Bravo and A Perfect Spy, stopping off along the way to prop up the sets in Crossroads and to get dispatched by a killer vegetable man in Doctor Who, in one of the show's undisputed classics, The Seeds of Doom. He was also a regular in No Hiding Place for four series, making him a household name and face for a while, but he's been just as happy popping in and out of shows, doing good work and nipping on to the next thing. He's refreshingly free from actorly hang-ups, and his healthy outlook on the profession is both wise and instructive. And he's written a book, and it's very good, an honest and witty appraisal of his long career. Forthright, funny and frank, inconsequential and irrelevant, as it is called, is full of tales that will be meat and drink to consumers of podcasts like mine. So I jumped at the chance to interview Mike when he was put my way by Peter Purvis. Peter says that Mike has written a brilliantly witty, truthful and entertaining book about being an actor. I recommend it to everyone in the business and definitely anyone contemplating an acting career. And that's a pretty good summation of what is a terrific read. Mike has just passed a milestone birthday, as it happens, so I was delighted that he was able to spare some time to talk to me via the magic of Zoom. I was slightly less delighted when the technology failed for me on the second part of the interview, so apologies for the drop in quality. But Mike is such good company, I hope you don't notice too much. And I think you'll agree that he is anything but inconsequential and irrelevant. Um, so it's my great pleasure to pe- speak to Michael. Michael, you've written a, a, a book about your life as an actor. Your television credits yes. uh, currently go from 1960 to 2011. Uh, so what's what's the secret? I've interviewed a lot of actors. I know a lot of actors. Most don't stay the course. M- many that do and don't end up being disappointed. Your brilliant book has what I would call a sort of rueful optimism about it. Uh, so is is that part of the key to the su- to the success of your long running career? Uh, I love that phrase, a rueful optimism. That uh, I like that. I may use it. <laughs> so, what I I honestly think that's a question that's got me stumped. How you you last, I think, by having a lot of friends and more than anything else, a lot of good luck. I remember very early on, Peterborough twice nightly, the first job I ever did. And I looked there at the, some of the actors I was going to be working with. And I thought, these people are just good. They are good actors. And they're sitting here in doing twice nightly rep. They will never get the break, the bit of luck that will send them that little step higher. And I made a conscious decision then to go where I was going to meet the people and be luckier than they were. And it it turns out that way. There are sometimes, I think talking amongst actors, when you say, he's such a good actor, she is a good actress. Um, and you think, why haven't they been more successful? And the answer is they haven't had the breaks. You know, some people are just bad and they just die by the roadside. So many get caught up with um, marriages, houses, mortgages, and the luck deserts them. They don't get it. I haven't got an answer to this, Toby, um, except you just stay in there. You have to want to do it. And I always wanted to do it. And I had a couple of good friends along the way that helped me. I think that's about the best I can come up with. No, it's good. Well, the reason I I thought of Ruthful Optimism, I was, was, uh, uh, there's a great sense of humour running through the book but i think it's it's quite a balance isn't it I, you, you know a lot, a lot of actors reminiscences even some very successful ones i've read many an actor's autobiography and 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 there can't help to be a sort of trace of bitterness and that's not a criticism of the actor it's because it's a a career that has 
frustrations sort of woven into its DNA. And you don't romanticize those, uh, but but there, there seems to be very little sort of score settling or 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 self justification. You're you, you give them you get give the impression that you were very much along for the ride, which uh, which is which makes it great fun to read. Well, I've always thought that someone told me a long time ago that it took like 75 muscles in your face to laugh, and it took 100 to produce a frown, so you might just as well laugh, it was easier. And somehow, score settling, no, I don't like that phrase. There have been people that I have not been able to get on with. And I've had a lot of resentment at the time and thought, you really stabbed me in the back, or you did this, that, and the other. You did something. And the only person who's actually hurt by those feelings is yourself. You sit there, you fester, you get destroyed. The other person doesn't give a damn. So, come on, let's have the laugh. And to be honest, I've had laughs that I shouldn't have had. I've um, uh, been very amateur sometimes when I've interrupted a scene because something has just struck me as being so hilarious that I, I couldn't help but comment. And everyone goes, cut, shut, oh, oh, God, he's done it again. But sometimes it's it's a ridiculous, lovely, wonderful business. And if you can't get laughs out of it, that's it. Just remember, Donald McQuinney, a great, great, great director, he said once when they suddenly pulled a switch on him and said, um, that's it, it's our tea break, Governor, got to go in the middle of a crucial scene. He suddenly said, if if you're doing this for money, don't bother. There's plenty of jobs you can do it elsewhere. You get more money. But if you're doing it for the love of it and for the laughs, come on, let's go. And it says, if you can't enjoy it, don't do it because you won't get rich. Very few people do. It's just got to be fun. You've got to laugh. And there's no good having resentment. If only, because if only didn't happen. That's why you don't bother with it. I just remember one actor who I found myself holding hands with him. He'd done terrible things to me on stage, upstaging, behind my back the whole time. It doesn't matter. But we just didn't get on. It came to a point where if he went or I went from the company and he went. And I found myself holding hands at New Year's Eve at a party once. And he said something like, oh, gosh, who thought that we'd end up holding hands at New Year's Eve, wishing each other, old Lang Syne? I said, if you knew what I was wishing you at this particular time, then you wouldn't be quite so happy. And he just laughed. Yeah, the sad thing is that he died shortly after that. And I lost. I lost badly out of that little exchange. And um, I, wished, I wish I'd never done it. I did. I try not to do it again. I, I've just had fun throughout all this career. It's been fun because there's always been laughter. That's all well, I can say, really. That, that that permeates the book, which um, I've I've been thoroughly enjoying. It, it uh, now not all actors can write. Um, you can certainly write, Mike, and and um, but also not all actors can remember everything that they've done. Uh, uh, and it's a, it's a that it's got a lot of you know it's a it's a bulky book and it's not uh, it's it's not just sort of trivial. I've been quite disappointed by a lot of books that I read where it's just a sort of list of jobs or whatever. Your 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 memory is very good. Your storytelling is great. So what made you decide to write the book and then then how was the process? Because writing takes a lot more uh, discipline, I think, than than people who haven't done it realize. Yeah, um, actually, it's, the answer to that question is in the dedication. Um, which my eldest son said, Dad, you've got to write it all down because, like most actors, I can't stop talking about myself, give him half a chance. And um, at one occasion, he must have said, You've got to write it down. And I thought, Yeah, why not? And you start to jot a few things, and then suddenly something else says, Oh, do you remember that time when? And you do. And that ended like a disaster, didn't it? Yes, but wasn't it funny? And you suddenly you think, there is a story here of some kind. Now, I hate the word memoir because it it's, shows a kind of arrogance that someone wants to actually 
listen and hear all about you. You think you're so important that someone wants to read about you. I came into this business, I suppose, to entertain, whether it be to make audiences laugh or cry. I, it's what you do as an actor. You entertain. It's not rocket science. You meet actors who take it also terribly seriously and they've got stomach ulcers or they're dead or something, but it's there to be enjoyed and to entertain other people. And that's why I suppose I put these some of these stories down because I think a lot of them are funny. Um, a lot of the occasions were funny. 75 muscles only rather than 100. Um, I, that's why. And finally you find you've got a book and then you think, ah, what about, if you notice, I can't leave it alone at the end. Like, oh, there's something else. Add a little other chapter, the epiphany. There's <laughs> something I forgot to say. Uh, you tell me when to shut up because I can go on for a bit. No, it's great. I, I, and I mean, is, did you find that happening that you you thought you'd remembered something and then something that had lain dormant and you hadn't thought about for God knows how many years suddenly opened itself up because you were because you were rooting through your your memories and things that you'd forgotten you suddenly remembered. Is that is that part of the process? Totally, totally, absolutely. You do. It's, something jogs your memory. Well, I remember working in radio. I worked in radio a lot. Thanks to friends again when I had the cancer and it was unemployable. Um, I was sitting in the green room with the other actors. The director hadn't yet arrived. And we all introduced ourselves and said hello. We chatted and had coffee. And suddenly a voice from the doorway sort of said, it was the director who said, I have been standing here for 20 minutes and I've decided that I needn't be here. You can write this whole thing by yourself. You just chat. You talk, and you keep on saying, oh, and that reminds me. Did you ever meet so-and-so? And yes, it happens all the time. <laughs> this is, I think he was quite sorry that he had to start the rehearsal. But, um, <laughs> it, it, it is, you're quite right, too. It, 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 something jogs your memory. You think, ah, good Lord, I've forgotten all about that. And yes, you drag it out and say, that was quite funny. That was amusing. It was interesting. Let's write it down. Yeah. Well, and of course, it's got a great cast of characters because you've had such a, a a long and varied career. And I was delighted. I mean, I, I mean, I, I I found out about the book because of our mutual friend Peter Purvis. I'm tickled by the idea that you and <laughs> Peter Purvis are mates. So, how, how how long do you and Peter go back? <laughs> Probably as long as Tottenham Hotspur have been playing. <laughs> <laughs> we met almost certainly. And I'm terribly ashamed of this, so I'm not saying it. But um, I almost certainly met him through his wife. His first wife was a very darkly attractive woman with lovely black long hair. And I probably saw her and made a move across a bar somewhere and was cut off in midway by this large, handsome chap who said, excuse me, my name is Peter Purvis. And she's with me. That's uh, that, that. That's almost certainly, I would guess. Since then, we clicked. We had so many mutual interests. Football being one of them, it's always good to have some interest outside the business because we never worked together at all in his days as an actor. And he's um, gone on such success in so many ways. He's been able to reinvent himself as. And, and has kept going quite persistent, same reason. He loves doing the business. And he just he just keeps at it. And for years, for years, I carried a broken toenail that was split straight down the middle where I was babysitting his son. I mean, anyone, anyone that would have the bad sense to leave me in charge of their son overnight or... <laughs> Really deserves all, all the friendship I can give him. <laughs> um, it 
that I, I, I remember sort of forcing about three, four straight wheats down him because he kept on saying, I want another one. I said, good, yeah, that's it, eat it. And the poor kid was stuffing another one down his throat and said, more? And I was just giving him a really hard time until I, I decided to play a bit of football along this corridor. And I kicked over the ball to let him win and kicked the wall and split my toenail from top to bottom. And I carried that. It kept on growing up and out and always split. And I thought, that's a, that's a good souvenir of a long friendship. <laughs> and uh, he's always been there. If, if he ever wants help, that's what friends are for. You want, you want some help? You turn to them. And Peter's just been there. Gosh, how long is it? It's a long time. Long time. A long time. Now, there's obviously I'm, I'm, I need to straddle a line here because I don't want uh, you to give away too many of the stories in the in the book because we want to encourage people to to avail avail themselves of it. But uh, uh, I know that anyone that listens to to the stuff that I do is is always very interested about um, actors who worked on, uh, uh, you know, who, who've worked in, in what some of us refer to as the golden age and are very interested in those those times. But um, I think people reading the book might be surprised to learn that you you didn't actually uh, go to one of the drama schools or anything you threw yourself sort of straight into the into the profession so so what inspired you to be so bold um and did you ever feel that perhaps um you'd have liked to have gone to drama school or did you think it that that wasn't an issue because you learned on the job um i learned on the job and that was not easy of course not going to drama school, there was a wonderful man who ran the Bristol Old Vic School called Rudy Shelley. And uh, he, he was the person who launched Peter O'Toole onto a career. This scruff arrived for an audition. Um, what do you want? I want an audition. We're not auditioning. Well, I want one now. And Rudy Shelley auditioned him and shattered him with his skill and booked him on the spot. And there was Peter O'Toole launched on a career who became another great friend and um, a very good friend. However, Rudy Shelley talking to him one day, he said, you can't teach people to be an actor. They come to stage school, you can't teach them how to act. You can, what you can do is to teach them how to get by when they can't cope with the part. You teach them a technique. And that I always had to learn. Maybe I've got it now, but perhaps I did, I'm just cast or was cast as the sort of person I was. But one of the best write-ups I ever had was from a writer in, in, in um, Bristol, Peter Kerr, a critic, who was um, a very, very well thought of critic. And I was doing a play called Captain Carvalho. And it was what they call a, a, um, a personality part. This man gone around seducing women, fighting in wars. And um, I had done none of those things uh, and uh, at that stage. And I went to see the film. I went to see the person playing it on stage. And I couldn't do it. And the review at the end was a very detailed review of the play in the Bristol paper. It said this, that, and the other. He was good. He was that. This part was that. And the last line said, the part of Captain Carvalho was played by Michael McStay. Boom. That was it. Killed with the <laughs> faintest of praises. <laughs> and um, that, I think that's that's what you learn at drama school, how to cope with that part that you can't play as you and the techniques and things that you can use. I had to learn the hard way, and I learned by being observant and telling lots of fibs along the way. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure there's another actor's autobiography that uh, uh, alludes to something in that review. I, th I can't remember who it is, but whose who's, who's autobiography is, is called Also Appearing Was. 
uh, which I always thought was <laughs> nice, a nice title. Where if you've you've gone for the very self-deprecating, inconsequential, and irrelevant, uh, which can refer to many different aspects of this great profession that's nonetheless very important to a great a great number of people. Um, uh, and and one thing, obviously, that is is noticeable about the profession over the length of time that you've been in it uh are changes um to how it's done to to pay to conditions but but i think the the one that most actors i talk to get most sort of rueful about is is the way that particularly television was done in the past where you got a you know got a week to rehearse and then you recorded in the evening uh, and that rehearsal was seen as very important time for the actors and now of course um you do most television programs you you turn up you do a little run through and then it's action and then you're into it. Now, the acting on television is very good these days. So is there anybody apart from the actors that loses out um, from that rehearsal? Do, 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 we know it's all about time and money and all of that sort of thing. And, and, and actors prefer rehearsal. But is do, do we lose stuff by, by, by doing things on the fly now? Or are we just looking for a golden era that we can't possibly replic replicate anymore? Um. There's too much television. By that I mean that in the golden age, there was BBC and then there was ITV and there was a lot of, it had to be good to get on air, really. Um, the show that I was involved with for three years was um, nothing like as good as Z Cars, but um, we used to take a lot of care over it and uh, now I get the feeling that things are, I suppose, being an actor, you, you look at it with a professional eye, but if you're looking at things with a professional eye and you're noticing a boom that's got into shot, a microphone that's got into shot, or something that, uh, that's not right, it, it isn't good enough. You should be caught up with that. That's the whole point of, of, of drama. There's too much of it now. I, I, I watched something just the other day and I thought, I've seen this. And I I hadn't. In fact, it's a different show that's showing on a different channel at the almost at the same time. But uh, who was it who said Aristotle or something? There's only seven basic plots known to... Uh, and when you're churning them out, something goes sound is one of the things that bothers me very much these days. I can't hear the actors. A lot of people, I think, are the same way. And I remember at a time when film, television, television is now a small film, mostly. You don't get that rehearsal time, as you say, and to, to work at it, you, <clears throat> you'll give two or three versions until the director likes something you've just done. But you would, you would have way over in the corner of the set, there'd be the sound recorders. And you finally, you'd shoot a scene, and the director said, right, everything, everyone okay, got that lighting, this camera, sound. And from the far corner, say, yeah, everything's fine by me, you just couldn't hear the actors. And they'd be, and we'd do it again. And they would sometimes overlay four, five, six, eight soundtracks to get it sounding right, looking right. That is not the time now. It's expensive outrageously expensive and um, so much goes by that the actors know what they're saying, the director knows what they're saying because they're expecting it. You don't expect that dialogue when it comes out as the listener and you can't catch it quite what they said. And that is one of the big things that's lacking now. As a result of, I've, I've got to fill more space on something, some satellite in the sky, which is showing a lot of stuff that is just churned out to, it's moving wallpaper, no more. And I think that's sad. Um, no uh, an actress friend of mine always, always exchanged messages about whisper, whispering acting. Uh, when and, and I, I mean, we watch stuff with the subtitles on now because uh, I, I quite often... Oh, then, I, then you start checking the subtitles to see whether they've actually said or, or spelled it correctly. But, uh, yes, I know exactly what you mean, Toby. Um, sadly. 
Now, you alluded there to, a, uh, you said, a, you know, a, a series you were in for a while. That was uh, that was a, a, a huge series, No Hiding Place, uh, which you were in for four, four, four seasons as a regular. So that's a, that's that's a very different part of being an actor isn't it because suddenly you're you're sort of owned by the public how did you find uh that being being the star of a popular series and what was it what was it like having that um i mean i've 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 had a, a few occasions where i've you know been in something more than for you know one episode or something and suddenly just the idea of just being able to turn up and the scripts are already and all you have to do is just the acting and you you, you know you're employed for a while uh, is is a great feeling, but then of course, act, actors are easily bored. And 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 from your from your book, you sort of say, you know, you you quite often, you know, once you'd got money in the bank, you actually weren't that bothered about sticking around and would go on and want to want to do other stuff. So how do you how do you balance that the the sort of security and joy of a regular job and the fact that the the whole part of the business is about doing different things? It's 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 sort of almost contradictory, isn't it? The first thing you have to do is to watch your weight. I mean, they're quite seriously. <laughs> you start eating, and it is, I promise you, it's noticeable. If one could go back and look at those early scripts, uh, those early days, there's a whole weight gain going on there. There's a certain air of confidence that comes about things. The one thing that never leaves you is the stress. Uh, you're always under some kind, you're on, as they say, always on. You can't, you can't afford to fall over in public, in a pub or anything like that. And um, the public, of course, are wonderful. They'll stop you in the street and insult you because you're not real. You're that person on the television, and they say, "Yeah, I don't like your program much." And I remember saying to one chap, "Well, you know, at least you can turn me off." I seem to be stuck with you. <laughs> and um, he, he went away very miffed. He was rude to me. Good Lord. <laughs> but um, what, the, the one thing, thank goodness, that we didn't have in those days, there, there were no celebrities. The word celebrity had not been mentioned. And now I have noticed some people that you admire suddenly we get they become a celebrity something clicks and they have to behave as a celebrity they go on game shows and start waving hello hi oh hey and they wave it's not them it's not the way they behave you have to behave in an alien way and that i never had to do i i, I was I, I was no good at it, actually. I, I was quite. I, I got booked onto one game show. I'd gone off to America and come back and slept for 48 hours and didn't even hear my phone go. And my agent finally got me and said, You're on. Did you not? You're on tonight on a game show. I thought, Oh my goodness. And it was a. I, I did it. I. Let's just say that I was never, ever asked again. To be on a game show of any kind, um, but um, oh, I couldn't go along with that silly stuff. People imitating Charlie Chaplin and me saying I blame the mothers; it's not their fault. The poor kid is leaving alone. <laughs> to see the, the producer saying, "No, you don't say that. You don't say that on his kids' talent shows." However, I preferred it then. The silly thing was that. Television, all devouring, made you more famous and open to all, open to all those insults because you were not real. Sometimes you get asked real questions about, um, as a policeman, a real policeman, um, they thought questions about their son's behavior. Can, is there anything you can do to help? I might be able to. And you think, you're believing this. I, I'm not a policeman. My father hated policemen for some reason. <laughs> he used to go crazy when at work to say, yeah, yeah, your son's a copper. No, he's not. He's not a policeman. And, but they do think that way. And you're more famous than famous actors. I, I, I have walked down the street with some well-known people. And they just 
don't know who the other person is. You're on the box. You belong to them. You're wonderful. And they can, when you're sitting chatting up a young lady in a restaurant and you're having a quiet meal that you think, you watch two girls and say across there and one of them, is like, yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's him. Yes, it is. It must be. Yes, him. And finally, they get up and start to walk towards you. One girl did. And I said to the girl I was with, excuse me, but I'm afraid this happens all the time. I'm, I'm so sorry. Excuse me. So this girl produced her book. Could I have your autograph? I said, of course, of course. Big smile. Gave my autograph. She looked at it, scrumpled up the paper and shouted back to her friend. She said, I told you it wasn't him. Which more or less finished my evening. <laughs> I crawled up as best I could make a dignified exit. But um, it, it, you you do start to belong to other people, but you do have that ability to the fear of the next job goes. You've got a job, and also avoid the complacency. That's the other thing that you do have to do. You've got to do it right every week. Now, yeah, now there's. So many things I have not seen because I don't want to, because I've seen them, and because they are churned out, and I just said rather badly sometimes. Have I answered your question there at all? In the yeah. Of all Bumble? Good. That's good. good. Uh, well, and of course, you can't um, legislate for what's going to last and, and what isn't. I mean, I, I'll probably be releasing this because it will tie in with uh, a podcast I've done about. Uh, your your two episodes of Doctor Who. Now you've done you've done so much television. Well, you know, starring roles, regular roles, um, stuff that would be deemed at the time probably more illustrious. But Doctor Who is well loved and it has lasted and it has endured. And I would suspect you get asked about that as a, a, a lot. And yet you're dead by the end of episode one. But it's uh, it's a. It's it's tell me. I know. Yes, Douglas Canfield. Yes. <laughs> One of my favourite men, Douglas Canfield. He, he he got me out of trouble. He gave me so much work. That was one of them. You did I did anything for him. He was a wonderful man. Any Doctor Who fan will know all about Douglas Canfield. But um, a great director. And uh, why did he give me? Because that bit, that Seeds of Doom became a classic. Mm. Heaven knows why. Um, as you said, you can't say these things in advance. Why did he have me killed off? I complained at the time. I said, good Lord, you're wasting such a good actor on one episode. <laughs> but had, 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 had I known that nearly 50 years later, they're still getting repeat fees and things like this. I thought, God, I only did one. If I'd done the whole six, I could have retired forever. <laughs> Little green column. <laughs> but... Uh, Yes, Doctor Who has a fan base which I enjoy being a part of. I, there are a wonderful bunch of people who only wish you well. The fans don't always wish you well. <clears throat> um, I remember the days of Ready Steady Go, some of the pop groups were terrified because they get torn to pieces by the fans who just wanted to go. But the sort of fans you get on a show like Doctor Who are your friends. They want, they just want to like you. They want to like the show. They want, it's it's a great feeling. It's a great bunch of people to be part of in a way. I have to explain now, of course, it was the best part of 50 years ago when it was done. <clears throat> and uh, I don't quite look the way I look then. Uh, thank goodness you can't see me <laughs> at the moment. But um, it is 50 years later and the hair is not quite as black as it was. And I never, ever had a beard anywhere in the first place. But I have to explain who I am. And this, they take, take you to their hearts immediately. Love it. I love them. You were yes, it's a stick-on beard you've got on the the in 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 those days you weren't necessarily expected to grow a grow a beard. I suppose there wasn't time to grow a beard. There, there wasn't, and it was very fortunate I had that beard because um, I I managed to smash my car 
um, after the recording, and we hadn't done the, the pre-filming. So we, we'd done all the studio stuff. And I, I found myself in hospital with them, a badly scarred face. The first person into the hospital was Dougie Canfield's wife with toothbrush, toothpaste, and um, face cloth and stuff that you need. Second person was Dougie saying, will you be all right for the filming? He said, what? I said, I'll be all right. But of course, that beard was the same here. They could stick it over all the scars and carry on filming. <laughs> oh, yes, it was quite an eventful little show in many ways. Well, and it, uh, it is. It's it's one of the great Doctor Who stories. And even though you, you get killed by the end of a show, you still have time for it. There's a fantastic scene where um, Tom Baker tells you you're going to have to amputate your friend's arm. And it's brilliantly acted by you. It's brilliantly acted by him. It's really atmospherically directed by Douglas Canfield. And I love it. So uh, it's a great pleasure for me you know, to be able I, to talk to you about it. I didn't raise that particular scene deliberately I, because <laughs> that was one of the problems we had. Oh, no, I haven't. I, I just I didn't really like it. It didn't always make sense, some of the things. And we came to the take and we were playing that scene and I just suddenly said, Tom Baker turned to me and said, oh, right, you'll have to amputate his arm. And I said, but I I can't do that. I'm, I'm not a surgeon, I'm an archaeologist. And Tom just went into hopeless laughter. Dougie came down from the studio. What was the problem? Problem? What's the problem? What's the problem? And Tom said, "Oh, it's, it's just Mikey's little face." Well, he tries so hard to believe in that line. <laughs> <laughs> he was unable to carry on, but none of us had seen it. It was a bit of a silly line in a way, wasn't it? Really, and suddenly, actually, taking people's arms off, I paid the price. Oh dear, the crinoid got me. Modern technology is a wonderful thing. You can communicate with somebody and record what they're saying uh, and have it in pretty good quality thanks to Zoom. Unfortunately, you can only record for a certain amount of time, then you have to stop and start again. And that's what Michael and I did. But unfortunately, the second part of our conversation was not, uh, it didn't work for some reason on the Zoom recording. However, I was backing it up, but with inferior means so it's it's you know i don't want to lose the end of the conversation and michael says some fascinating things but the quality is not quite so good and for that i can only apologize to you and to michael but uh, technology was beyond me should we blame me and not the technology it's pro probably my fault anyway i did do a backup but the quality is not quite so good so apologies to your ears or for anything that is indistinct and let's pick it up with me asking Michael about more aspects of his career. Uh, it's always, I'm, I'm amused in the book when you, you, you start talking about Crossroads because I just watched um, Nolly on uh, ITV, which if you haven't seen, I can recommend as the sort of the life story of, uh, of Noel Gordon, um, focusing on when she, was, when, when she was fired from, from Crossroads and you crossed paths with that famous motel, um, which has become a byword for um, a notoriously quick way of making television um we can get nostalgic about that stuff but it was it was it was certainly a way of doing things wasn't it <laughs> yes i um, i watched the first two episodes of that program i haven't yet seen the last one um noel gordon and i i don't think she was quite as lovely as that um painted her occasionally uh, that, that show but um well she was a very imperious lady. Uh, we, yes. Uh, what, what can I say? I, I didn't want to do it. It was crossroads. It's killed me a career. But uh, my agent, I, I just got married. I just take out a mortgage. Every actor's failure. Take out a mortgage. Don't do it. You know, and commit it to something else beyond your, your, your career, just making money. So after three days of drinking, I told my agent, I said, yes, I'll do it. And he said, good, they want to audition you. I said, what? They want to audition me? 
He says, yeah, so I got drunk for three more days and went <laughs> up there. And I, I, I suppose I went up with the wrong attitude, fell out almost immediately with Noel Gordon. But there was a lady named Joy, Joy Andrews, Joy. She was an elderly lady. And I, I, I was strutting around the place, didn't want to be there. Um, fortunately, I had a couple of director friends who, uh, who were doing it and made my life easier. But, um, we, uh, we crossed swords one day, this, this lady, Joy and I, who said, you are really being a little bit stupid, aren't you? Because this to us, is a retirement job. We've spent a lifetime in, it, in, in this business, and we've never had the luck you had. And now we've got it, and we're enjoying it. And please treat us with some respect, or worse than that. And I suddenly thought, oh, yes. Once again, shut your big mouth, Michael, and just get on and do what you are paid to do. And, but it, it was painful, though. It was a bit painful. I think there was a there was a lady in it who had written in and said, "I can I can act as well as those people." So they gave her a job, and she became a regular and was faced with an actor. And also, she was one of the more liked actor regulars of the motel. And dealing with a guest one day, a guest actor, she said, "Well, I, I can't I can't do." Cope with that? What? What's he doing? And the answer came: He's acting. It's called acting. <laughs> just try and try and manage it. <laughs> he said, oh, 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 no, no, it's all no, no, no. <laughs> anyway, it was a world unto itself. But there were good people on it, and the money. I mean, the boy, but. Not multiplied, it was multiplied five times or something. Um, I did it. I survived. I happened to be at ATV doing something, because it was shown in the afternoon at the time. And so no one really saw Crossroads in, in, in business. <clears throat> and and um, I went to go drink at the bar, and the barman said, Yeah, you're in Crossroads, aren't you? I said, Don't tell anybody. Don't tell a soul. <laughs> Oh, uh, what do you want to drink? Have a drink, have a good tip. Please don't mention the fact. Because it didn't do any good. No. I mean, one or two, well, no, I, I shouldn't go. I really shouldn't go on to it. It entertained. And they did, again, they took those people in that crossroads hotel to their hearts. And uh, why not? Absolutely. Because it's happiness. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Do you remember doing uh, a series called Out of the Unknown? You did an episode um, directed by a, a favourite director of Michael, Michael Ferguson, uh, and uh, Anthony Bates was in it. It was called um, The Last Witness. Uh, it's sadly missing from the archives, but there is a tiny clip that exists that's got you in it, um, but it's only a, a, only a fragment, but it is otherwise, it is, is otherwise lost, uh, and it's sort of set on a hotel after a shipwreck. Anthony Bates... You directed by Michael Ferguson from 1971. Well, Michael Ferguson, I remember him well. I, 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 I have no memory of it except certain episodes, or certain uh, moments within it. Um, for example, getting up at some ridiculous time in the morning, I had to carry the body of my dead wife from behind a rock out across this large expanse of beach. And Something like six in the morning, we were all called because that was when the tide was out. There was a perfect beach, empty, and I could walk across it carrying this girl in my arms. And we were filming from the top of the cliff top. And of course, once one take only because we couldn't get rid of the footprints. And we finally went to the take. And when you're carrying a girl in your arms, she is automatically helping you until she goes dead. Then, of course, you've got the full weight of the girl. And I thought, this really isn't, I cannot, wow, I can't even support her, so we're off. Action. And I walked out from behind this rock and across this beach, 
carrying this old dead woman. And from the other side of the beach came a man running. Can I help you? Can I help you? This is unbelievable. What's he doing at six in the morning out there? Can he help us? I remember through gritty teeth, oh, 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 there's something psyche about it too, because we were talking about this, how mad actors are, and mad crew people are, they are stupid. We, I, I also had to carry this dead wife of mine along a cliff edge, and down one side, the left hand side, is a sheer drop. And I do it. Why? Because I don't want to disappoint the director, Michael Ferguson. Um, and so I, I start to carry him, and the cameraman is backing down here, carrying a camera, backing down a little bit, and I lost my footing, and I just went to my left, and the only split-second memory I have is of watching the cameraman go with me, keeping me in shot, whatever he did, keep me in shot. Thank God, well, I'm here. I didn't go, nor did he. But you think... What sort of madman would really, particularly the cameraman, oh dear, I'm going to fall down this cliff filming this man who's falling down the cliff. Yeah, you But better to be dead than embarrassed, I think, is... is. <laughs> uh, now... Um, now you've, you've you've written the book, but that's not the only writing you did, and I'm not surprised because the book is very it's very funny. But you um, tell me about your uh, your your uh, visit to the other side of the the process, pull the other one in 1984 with Michael Elphick, which is not an acting job; it's a writing job. So um, how did that come about? I remember it terribly well, of course. Michael Elphick, lovely man. Uh, well, of course. I I was working in radio, and so I had the contacts, and that's all so important, always to have the contacts and know the people. But I had one play done because um, I reckoned I could write, I think. I think the play was it lasted about seven and a half hours for radio, um, which a friend of mine cut down to half an hour. <laughs> And uh, it was successful. Uh, and working in radio is one of those old um, stories, legends that didn't actually happen. You know, um, the, 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 the hitchhiker who uh, claws people's heads off and things like this. And, yeah. Uh, all, all the, all the, um, anyway, this this was Grandma on the roof right then. Uh, I, I thought, I'll, I'll write this. And it, it was picked up immediately by ATV uh, as, a, as a television series. And it's... A, nobody understood it. It, it, it. it was savage when it was first shown. And... I I knew the only place to be. I, I was living down the New Forest at the time. I knew I had to get to London and face the people because they were saying some pretty bad things about my writing. And a friend phoned me on the following Sunday. Have you seen the Sunday Times? And the Sunday Times had written. A, eulogistic article about it. This is the way comedy should be. It's black comedy, and other people finally change their minds. But um, it was black comedy of the highest order or something. And uh, a lot of comedy is black. It, it, it more or less saying is, I, I think I've I, I given up completely at that stage because it was destructive. And the only thing that I am grateful for uh, at the moment, is that you like the present book that I've written because it's a devastating thing. 
Mm. A great friend of mine, Douglas Livingston, fine writer. Yeah. Uh, uh, his, his wife's a, a good actor as well. And his wife said to me once, you can say what you like about his acting, but don't ever say a word against his writing. Because that comes from somewhere. And you you say things that come from a, a different part of you, which perhaps you mean to say that you said them. And I will say, Toby, now that both my wife and my eldest son, at some stage during the course of that book, decided they didn't like me particularly. But um, there, there, there is a... I keep on talking about the word arrogance. Uh, I have done... I've been pretty arrogant in, in my time, which makes you a difficult actor. Sometimes it means just getting what you actually are due or whatever. You, you fight your own battles and will become difficult. But... Uh, it, it, it's come from places perhaps I shouldn't have put them down, but they happen. It was the way things were. I mean, the whole business, the whole episode of cancer is not very funny, but um, it's, I think I managed to find a laugh in it somewhere. Um, but maybe I said too many things that I don't, I don't know. It, it, it's so personal writing. It, it's not like acting. Um, it's, it comes from within you. But, but I... I think it's what makes a good writer, though, Mike. I think it's what makes a good book. I, I, I don't get the impression from the book that you're trying to make me like you, and and I think and and I think sometimes you can see through that, and they become fluff pieces. What you've done is is written a very honest, sometimes self-effacing, uh, but 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 always very genuine account, and let the reader make up their mind whether they agree with your observations or your conclusions, or whether you did the right thing in that particular story. It's not one of those what I call, and of course, I had the last laugh books, which a lot of books can be where it's it's always that the writer's always sort of seeking to justify themselves or put themselves in the, the best light. And that's why I thought it was, was very interesting. You're, you're, I mean, you're being quite hard on yourself now, but for something that I, I think is, is an asset to the book is that it's, it's, it's not fluff. You know, it's, it's honest. Yes. Well, it's good. Uh, well, look, and, and let's. Uh, I'm, as I say, I'm very conscious of your time, so I'm going to I'm going to wrap up by asking some just some very positive things. I, I I guess what what jobs that you've done have been your um, favourites, just in terms of whether you think you did a particularly good job in them, or whether they were just particularly enjoyable of your of your uh, television acting jobs that you enjoyed the most. Um. <clears throat> I would instantly say blunt a small part, but working with people like Ian Richardson and Tony Hopkins, and um, it, it, it got me a lot of good brownie points. But it was also such fun to be fun and frightening to be working with those sort of people. Where you know you, you don't get things wrong. Uh, I enjoyed that immensely. I think the job which gave me more pleasure is not No Hiding Place, as it happened. Not even Doctor Who and Dougie Counter, or so many things I did with Dougie. I did a, a, a series in France. I was there for six months and did a series called Le Marie de l'Ambassadeur. It was in French. I did it in French. And I wasn't dubbed. I was spending six months in the most wonderful city in the world, eating some of the best foods, surrounded by a whole different way of making films. They, they, they really got that they worked differently from us. And I felt proud, that you should feel proud. It was just something that I went to do a post-thinking session, picking up some of the things later in the sound studio that they hadn't quite got on mic. And I heard the sound man say, he's not bad, is he? Considering he doesn't even speak the language, he's pretty good. And I thought, wow, that's been a challenge. Uh, in fact, I was having panic attacks afterwards. I didn't know it. And I was having some panic attacks at night. But that was a wonderful job. A wonderful job. And I've never been seen in this country, sadly. <clears throat> but uh, with memory peace. However, if to, to think back about 
a larger part that was the Debbie and the Lotus Eaters. Mm. Great show. All offer something. Some small, small parts. I mean, Ian Hendry, a, a wonderful actor. <coughs> um, not always sober. Uh, but uh, he he met me on the first day and I, I, I knew him. But he said, well, said, this part's up to you, isn't it? You fail, the whole show fails. I said, that's great, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I thought, have a, have a Guinness. And he, <laughs> he produced a Guinness at 10 o'clock in the morning and we started. And I had a fight to try and stay sober now. Not enough to rehearse it. But uh, the part was good. Great filming, great working with Dougie Canfield again. Toby, there's some large ones, there's some small ones. A lot of them give infinite pleasure. A lot of them... I I just had a very significant birthday. I call it my... It's not a landmark birthday, it's, it's a graveyard birthday. And um, I said that to people who were wishing me well, I had some... Done a couple of good parts, and they're forgotten. And I, 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 I've written a few things that um, have entertained a lot of people, and they're forgotten. It's all ephemeral. But I have a couple of things that I'm very proud of, which is my kids and the fact that I've survived a long time in this business and have met some wonderful people. They're really great people. And have managed to maintain a family throughout all that. And they put up with me, tolerated me. And they've had a lot to tolerate. But these are the things that stay with you. The people around you today, the people that have always been there. And the people you can call friends and family, I guess. Michael, now please confidently explain to the listener um, why they should perhaps... Uh, not see uh, anything inconsequential and irre- irrelevant in your book and buy, and buy the book that is out now um uh, and i think it's very entertaining but i want to i want to hear what you know what 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 you think the uh, the pasting listener will get out of it uh, if they're to read your book well i think i think it's really what you have been saying throughout which peter Purvis has said <coughs> and a couple of others that it is a different perspective on the whole business of acting, which is <laughs> seen to be glamorous and full of full of lovely people and saying lovely things, but seen from the perspective of from the worm's eye view of acting, the subtitle, I think that people might be, as one man said, a psychiatrist, he said, good Lord, he said, they have the same problems, actors, the same... Um, lack of confidence in things that, that we all have in life and that we have to get through and the fact that we do it in public is our fault but it, in a way an encouragement I hope to everyone who reads it is, sees the setback sees the pitfalls and I do hope sees the, hears the laughter as well because you've got to keep laughing otherwise it's a long silence afterwards. Well, uh, amen to that. Well, Michael McStay, thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. My thanks to Michael for being so generous with his time and for braving Zoom, which comes with pitfalls all of its own, one of which I think I fell into, which is why that second half was not as easy a listen technically, for which I apologise. But thanks to Michael, whose book is called Inconsequential and Irrelevant, A Worm's Eye View of Acting, and it is available from Quite Publishing. Quoit is Q-U-O-I-T. They have a website, www.quite.com quitemedia.co.uk and they have loads of books that'll be right up your street about ITC and The Prisoner and all sorts of other things but top of your list should be Michael McStay inconsequential and irrelevant available now thanks to Michael and to Peter Purvis no less for putting us in touch and thanks to you for listening
after our chat, Mike dropped me an email as a coder, and I'm sure he won't mind me quoting from it here. Just had to pop out to go and look at a tree, walnut, that Jenny had planted to mark my birthday. I had started to talk about that to you, but suddenly realised it had no significance to any of your listeners regarding reasons for writing books, and had to change tack a bit. But that is what will really last. Not roles played, or plays and books written, but as my son said, the tree is planted in his paddock. In 200 years' time, there will still be a small plaque in memory of Grandpa Mike's birthday. That's who I really want to be remembered as. Grandpa Mike. Actors are such sentimental fools. Well, amen to that. <laughs>